Welcome to another edition of On The Continent, your one-stop shop for all things European football. I'm Dotson Adibaya. I'm Andy Brassel. I'm Lars Seward. On today's show, after looking out of sorts on Sunday, we wonder what's next for France striker Antoine Griezmann. We also look at the latest situation around fans in stadiums as the Champions League draws closer. And whatever happened to poor old Norway against Serbia. I enjoyed the growling there. But before you answer that question, Lars... I have some things to say. I know you do. <laughs> With regards to Norway, you've got a lot of things to say. We'll get there eventually. But what a week it's been in terms of battling this pandemic through the prism of football when arguably the world's greatest footballer, Cristiano Ronaldo, is confirmed to have contracted coronavirus. Then anybody can get it. Yeah, um, apparently so. And... Um... I, I guess it's, it's, it's ploughing its way through top footballers now because, of course, it adds to uh, Ibrahimovic, Mbappe, other players who've, who've been there. Obviously, in France, Don, there's been quite a lot of examination of who he's come into contact with immediately after it came out. Now, um, of course, he had, a, he had a cuddle with Mbappe, who was... Uh, As you do. He, he, well, of course, uh, he, was, he was Mbappe's childhood idol. Quite a lot has been made of that. Mbappe's had it, so he's fine. And relatively, <laughs> relatively recently. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily fine. I don't know if you've been listening to the news. You can get it again. Be careful. Yeah, you're meant to have antibodies for a bit, aren't you? Mm. But um, I, I guess it varies from case to case. Uh, but um, Eduardo Camavinga, the teenage midfielder from Rennes, who was lucky enough to receive Ronaldo's jersey, and of course, when he was asked about it on the microphones <laughs> afterwards, said, well, I'm never washing this. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to have a slight rethink. I've got a bit of advice for you, Eduardo. <laughs> <laughs> Might want to watch it. But Superman, Cristiano Snow Ronaldo. Home. Try Clark not to sniff Ken. it anyway. You know, he, he has got a kryptonite then, which is coronavirus at the moment. I think it's everyone's kryptonite, isn't really? it? I mean, yeah. Yeah. But not everybody is Superman. Let's just make that clear. Not everybody is Clark Kent. Not everybody is Cristiano Everyone Ronaldo. Everyone on this pod is. Well, as, as much as we would like to think we are. Should we talk about Antoine Griezmann? What Let's. has happened to Antoine Griezmann? One point, he was going to be the world's greatest footballer and even got to do one of those hair commercials, as we know. Yeah. And then, before you know it, he is uh, out of sorts at the very least. Yeah, I, I, th I think you can say that with some certainty, Dotton. And, um, of course, this this has been coming for a while because we all know he's struggled a little bit at, at Barcelona. Um, not a great first season there. And there was always question, could he not just connect with his teammates, but could he get through that Suarez messy clique that there that obviously was both on and and off the field. Um there were moments when it it felt like he could adapt to it and that they they could adapt to him. Not a brilliant start to this season, it has to be said. But I think what's more concerning, and certainly as you're getting at Dotton in the, the context of the international game, the fact that now there's the possibility is he sort of becoming not exactly surplus to requirements but is he in an awkward position for the French national team because at the weekend when they play Portugal and they don't look like scoring at all for most of that game let's let's be said both coaches Didier Deschamps and Fernando Santos who care absolutely nothing for the aesthetics of their teams despite having so many wonderful players came out afterwards and said 
it was great defending. Well, it wasn't great attacking, that's for sure. And the interesting thing is now that Kylian Mbappe has been brought in from the right-hand side to play more centrally alongside Olivier Giroud, and we know that Mbappe wants to play as that second striker, Griezmann has been tried as a, as a number 10. It doesn't look great. And where has he got loads of parts of his game that should really lend themselves to him being a good number 10? He's very energetic. He's incredibly hardworking. Um, he's good at running with the ball, likes to have a lot of touches. And interestingly, if you go back over the numbers, if you look at the top assisters for the French national team, there are only two people in French national team history who've created more goals than Antoine Griezmann. You guys fancy having a guess? Uh, well, I would go for, uh, what's his name, that became FIFA whatnot afterwards. Platini. Uh, Platini. Yeah, Platini. Nope. Oh. Well, these records are always weird because so many more games have been played in recent times. So a lot of the giants don't well, turn you're getting up warm. on these lists. You're getting warm. So, um, <laughs> and then I've then my brain has kind of frozen a bit. Okay, I'm going to tell you Zidane and Thierry Zidane. Henry. Oh, well. uh, the, sure the, uh, the only two have created more goals. The most obvious names. I went for the history. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to show you know history. But that's, yeah, gravitas. Yeah, I like exactly, it. Yeah. I like it. But he's got so many aspects of his game that that should be making him a good number ten. But, but he's not a number ten. He, and where you think he thrived at Atletico Madrid? He's a central striker. Yeah, so he he's he's an interesting one because I mean he did kind of make his name at Real Sociedad as a sort of a left inside forward almost, but at Atleti where he sort of established himself as one of the top performers in Europe, he was almost playing in a role that doesn't exist for most teams in the sense that Atleti, one of the not too many teams who routinely play with two strikers, and 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 Griezmann would often play off a more sort of obvious number nine there. Uh, so he was more of a someone who would like to drop off and like to sort of come towards the ball a little bit. Yet he's not a playmaker. He is a striker. So he's almost he's a bit of a throwback to to back when the four four two, you know, big man, slightly more footballing man was the staple formation. And not that many teams play that this way. If you look at Atleti, he would play next with next to Mandzukic one season, next to Torres, you know, wh whoever it was. But and he's, he's very good with Olivier Giroud, isn't he? Yeah, this yeah. is the thing. And he would thrive when he could drop off a little bit and go looking for space, more so when he's the focal point of the attack. And you've seen in France, he's played by far his best football for France, playing off Olivier Giroud. So, I mean, this is the type of position where he really thrives and where he's, you know, really established himself as being one of those top performers. Now, that position does not exist uh, at Barcelona, and it's not going to exist at Barcelona. Barcelona. And if Barcelona played even remotely like that, he wouldn't be playing in that position because that's where you'd put Leo Messi if you played with a more stationary number nine and someone playing off him. So, so there's no chance of him getting that role at Barcelona at all. So they need to have a bit of a rethink there. I think him and uh, him and Coutinho could start some sort of support group for sort of players Barcelona have spent a lot of money on <laughs> without having an obvious position for them to play in. Um, our, our Tim Vickery have spoken very well about Coutinho looking for a, being a, a solution, looking for a problem ever since he came to Barcelona, and uh, I think that's right. Um, but but with Griezmann, I think there's a real conundrum there about where where exactly he's meant to play because you can think. He's a really good striker that they've brought in. So it's easy to sort of assume that he's meant to be a sort of long-term successor to Luis Suarez. But that doesn't add up if you look at what he actually does on the pitch and what he actually no. thrives at doing on the pitch. I do wonder if maybe the answer here uh, could be going back in time and, and asking him... And and, and 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 in fairness, this is where he's played the most, I think, for Barcelona, or one of the positions he's played the most. Maybe put him out on the left again and see if coming in from the left could be some sort of solution. 
but then you have an issue of where you put Ansu Fati and who you play up front and what's going on. It, it is really odd. Is his biggest problem Barcelona or is it France? Um, France will always find a way to incorporate him, I think, Don, uh, because he's just so important to them. And he's so important to them, not just in terms of what he can do on the ball, but what he can do off the ball. And that that's why he was really the ultimate Atletico player, because he would just you know, run all game. And then you can imagine him like after the game. I mean, I, I remember you, you talking about... Um, was it um, Valon Berisha when he yes. grew up in Norway getting on the treadmill after the yes. game yes. to burn off that excess That's energy? That, That's that, the way to do it. I was, yeah, and no, I was covering the Norwegian under-21s once when they were playing against England here in England. And I was uh, staying at the same hotel as the team. And uh, after the game, uh, I was chatting to one of the coaches and they were laughing because he'd played a full 90 minutes against the English under-21s, but Valon Berisha was in the hotel gym on the treadmill because he had some more energy to burn off. That's, that's pretty that incredible. Was outrageous. It, it, that's, a, that's what you call a cool down, actually. <laughs> we, we used to play five-a-side, just up the road from here. Yeah. And literally, there was one flash git who always used to go off and say, no, I'm just going to go for a little jog now afterwards, whereas we were all knackered and sipping on the bruise, you know? Anyway, that's well, the way ma- to ma- do ma- it. Maybe that's what Suarez and Messi are doing afterwards. And well, while Griezmann's going for his run, I, I I don't know. But... but I do think on the upside for Barcelona here, the fact that he can go through that much running is a positive because, again, any attack that has Leo Messi in it, you're going to need the other guys to run a bit more than they otherwise would. Well, that so was the thinking a, behind... When they brought him in, yeah. That was the thinking behind buying him, especially as Suarez starts to get a little bit older and, and, and post-Neymar, of course. But if you think that, I, I guess, Atletismo the Atletico Madridness of France was what won them the World Cup in, in, in 2018. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was the fact that even though they had all these fabulous players who we love to watch, the fact that Griezmann and Luca Hernandez were going to run all day, that was what ran their team. And I think to have a flair player who's prepared to put that much in is something absolutely extraordinary. I think, firstly, it shows he won't give up with... Barcelona but secondly he is absolutely indispensable to France and the love and respect that he's got in that squad is enormous I wonder if the medium term casualty of this is maybe Olivier Giroud because it's been suggested that every... he's a record holder now though, yeah. isn't he? Well, well, he, maybe he could be the record holder <laughs> yeah, if it well. goes on a little bit longer yeah. but I, I know that not. I, I tend to think that we don't expect France to play more openly going forward because Didier Deschamps is just not into that but if you've got two forwards in Mbappe and Griezmann who maybe don't seem the automatic great fit together, the thing is that they've both got such capable movement. I think you can make it work. I think you can make it work with just those two up top. The idea that France always need this reference point, do they? I mean, maybe they do, but Didier Deschamps talked quite passionately about they've got to find different ways to play. And that is one different way to play. It's, it's a fair point, and it's definitely worth trying in a few games. And this is one of those things, as much as we bemoan the international friendly and the Nations League, and we don't like them, it's very useful for France to have a few games where you can experiment for that sort of thing, because you don't want to see how it works mm. in, in practice. In, in terms of Barcelona, it's interesting that uh, Coleman so far has tried to play him on the right flank, because I guess... Because he's played, he's played in a sort of four-two-three-one with Messi as a sort of floating. I mean, if you look at the team sheet, they've put Messi up as a striker. But if you look at Messi's heat map, it's just sort of kind of all over the place. So he's kind of running here, there, and everywhere. 
and they're trying to make Coutinho work as a number 10. And Ansu Fati, who's so exciting, playing in from the left. And then what you're left with is having to stick Griezmann on right wing, and he's not comfortable there at all. He likes to be free, doesn't he? But I guess what you could, yeah. what you just, if you're Coleman, what you're telling Griezmann is, listen, this is this is what we're doing. You're 29, you're an experienced professional, we've paid a lot of money for you, you're going to pay a lot. Try to adapt, try to make the best of this. Yeah. As Andy's already said, if Barcelona's the problem rather than France, I wonder, and you're going to think this is rather distasteful, that I'm going to bring this down to the old Larry Parnes shillings and pence, but what happens to his prize tag? Because when he went to Barcelona, they were talking about, you know, record, best player in the world. Can we even have a bank big enough to have all the money you're going to need to pay for him but now I imagine if you're not playing well for your club team or if you're out of sorts and if your position is becoming more and more extinct in the greater scheme of things your your price tag's got to go down but this is part of why it's been such a disastrous signing for 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 Barcelona because you know he's 29 so his price tag is going to go down no matter what he does and you've paid uh, 120 million uh, euros wasn't it for him without a clear plan of where he fits into the fits into the team and you're not going to sell him on for for much of anything and that was even pre-covid you would have had this problem and certainly you have this problem now and Indeed. It, it is a problem for these teams. I mean, there are some teams who can bear this more than, than others. But when you sign players who are in their late 20s, early 30s, you're not getting much of that feedback. So no. when you're replacing them, you need to find that money somewhere else. And, and, I, and if you do that too many times, eventually your numbers start to look a bit scary, which is the what's what's going on in, in Barcelona. And I guess the problem, that that's why him not really finding his rhythm for France is, is a huge problem for Barcelona. Not just because... Confidence is obviously important in him recovering his, his, his previous form at club level as well, and confidence is, is a huge part of it. But what Lars says about, about resale, if he plays well for France, they'll be able to sell him to some Premier League club. I mean, Antoine Griezmann is still Antoine Griezmann. You know, people realise that that class hasn't disappeared. Um, but if they can't sell him to the Premier League, they can't really sell him to anyone because who else really has got the money to pay the sort of fee that, that they would want? I, I, I'm really curious about when we eventually, you know, touch wood, move out of this pandemic phase and we get to some fans back in the stadiums and the sort of the wheels of the football economy starts running normally again. I wonder what will have changed. Maybe cause, cause I, was, I was kind of sensing a drift in, in top-level football, even going into the pandemic, that clubs are more and more wary of signing slightly older players yeah, on big money definitely. and big contracts. Because I think they're just realising, you know, it's very simple. If you sign a 23-year-old and after a couple of years you move him on, either because he's done well and someone bigger buys him or because he's not done well and you want to freshen up, at least you get money back mm-hmm. and then you spend that money on someone else. But when you buy a player for big money, and whether he moves on for whatever reason, you don't get anything back. It's a bit. It leaves a big well, hole. In your, it, it leaves well, a big hole easy in your. On, you don't get anything back. You might have won the league. Yeah, no, for player. sure, for sure. Mm. No, you that, get that, something. That, They're doing it for a reason. Maybe short termism, but nevertheless, and you lose their wages as well if if you move them on, which is a, is a bigger part of it nowadays, isn't it? Now, it's something of a podcast of two players this week. 
We've done Antoine <laughs> Griezmann. Uh, we, your French pronunciation is more Griezmann. 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 I always say the way to pronounce it is think of him as a superhero. Not at the moment, obviously. I always think the way to remember how to pronounce his name is remember that they use him on a hair advert. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but there is... A yes, man. It doesn't work for the advert. Anyway, um, I said... I, I feel like you've muddied the waters further here, if, <laughs> well, if there anything. You go, there you go. Or at least put some brill cream on my uh, DA, as we used to call it in the old days, duck's ass. Uh, when, if you're a telly boy, you'll know what I'm talking about. So, like I said, a game of two players. We've done the French guy. Let's do the Norwegian guy now. Yeah, Erling Haaland. Yes, who who scored his first hat-trick for Norway, the first of many, I'm sure. Um, I have a confession to make. I, I, I didn't want, I fell asleep. I was, this was Sunday afternoon because I was watching Ireland Wales first and that put me straight out. And then I woke up again on the sofa later that day and the Norway game had already been and gone. So I actually missed this. I had to watch it back. Uh, to, <laughs> so I blame the Irish and the Welsh in general for this because that was appalling. That, that, that game was dreadful. They are small they, nations they, as They should well. never be allowed to play to each other or indeed football ever again. Uh, that, that game was really, really bad. Uh, no, he scored a hat-trick and I watched the game back and Norway were really quite good and um no he, he's what can i say he's fantastic and he has been fantastic for uh for, for dortmund and he's um as we've said before in this pod he has i think all the tools to eventually become the best number nine in the world i think i honestly think that in, in mm. terms of his physique the the physical stature he's a big guy you notice but he's so quick and he's becoming a more and more confident finisher i mean he really has a lot and a tremendous amount going for him i think the next step will be um he is more of a finisher still. I mean, he's someone, if you give him service, if you give him crosses and through balls and stuff to latch onto, uh, he'll put them away. I think if you're looking at, if you're going to set the bar at the, the best in the world, which I think when you've got as much going for you as he does, I think that's what you're aiming for. The thing you're looking for him is to maybe develop the side of a game where he can create more out of nothing, if you know what I mean. I mean, he, he currently is a striker who relies a little bit on service. Uh, but he is someone who also creates chances for himself. By He will press uh, opponents' defenders a lot and create something out of nothing in that way. Uh, the link play's coming on, isn't it? The link uh, play is coming on, and that's yeah. where there's stuff to improve. And also, yeah, to be less reliant on service and be better at creating things uh, on your own, I think. But it's, it's interesting watching Dortmund uh, because Favre, as a coach, is... He's a little bit different to what we see a lot in of sort of modern uh, sort of top uh, teams in, in in Germany do. There, it's a lot of high pressing in the league. Favre actually quite likes having Dortmund sit off a bit because mm. uh, he likes playing on the breaks where he likes to draw the other team in. And you can tell that Holland gets frustrated sometimes playing for Dortmund because he wants to chase. So sometimes he so sort of will sort of instigate uh, pressing on his own and sort of run around up there and chase the opponents because he doesn't want to sit off. Uh, so he has all this energy, which is uh, tremendous fun. Uh, but it was good for us, of course, for Norway to see that translated into the national team. And uh, excitingly, uh, for Norway, there's a lot to be said about the current national team boss of Norway, and we'll get to that. But I do like the fact that they're playing uh, with a big man-big man combo, which you don't see very often. <laughs> it's a uh, big uh, Alex Solot, uh, now of Leipzig, uh, who's uh, also a big player, uh, playing right next to Erling Haaland. And, and that works really well, because even though they're both kind of built like target men, uh, Alex Solot is a player who quite likes dropping off. I mean, he's his build-up play is, yeah, back-to-goal play is really good. Mm. Whereas Holland likes to run in behind. He likes to make those runs. I mean, he might be built like a, like a massive target man, but I mean, his 
if you analyze his sort of movement on the pitch, like he moves more like Jamie Vardy than, I don't know, Jan Kohler or some other sort of tall man you want to compare him to. He's a guy who loves making those runs in behind. So you compare him with uh, with another big man and it kind of works out. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? We still have that idea that if you're playing two up front, it has to be big man, little man. Yeah. And I think... Could be it, big man, big man. Yeah, <laughs> you, you've, you've, you've outlined the the way they they play which is neither of them is is a typical big man in a way and it goes back to how Mbappe and Griezmann might work and they'd be a very far from traditional pairing as as well and I think it was it was actually Raman Dominic and you know even a stop clock tells the right time twice a day was talking in the keep this week about you know you don't have to have that because if you look at Cole and York for Manchester United for example there's there's no obvious nine there is there and that can that can still work but i wanted to ask you lars about holland and this stratospheric rise obviously it's changed expectations of the norwegian national team and we'll come to that in a in a minute how has he dealt with the celebrity back home so this doesn't seem to phase him at all uh which is quite reassuring i think he is someone who is just first of all is laser focused on becoming a better player and this is like if you if you see any of the players who have played with them or the coaches who's worked with them, the thing everyone brings up is how serious he is about his game and how hard he works to 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 get better. And you know there are stories from uh, when he was at RB Salzburg and uh, after after away games, players would be mucking around in the bus and you know relaxing and sort of winding down and letting off steam. You know Holland might be sat in the back of the bus reading a book on meditation or something. I mean he's 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 incredibly focused on on uh, on on doing everything he can to become a little bit better next time he plays football. Uh, and, I, and and that hasn't changed at all. Uh, he seems. You know, in the, in the there's a lot been made of how monosyllabic he was in a lot of the interviews he did early on. Uh, he he seems certainly this time around this round of games he seems pretty chilled out. I mean, obviously he was one was in a good mood after scoring a hat trick, but there were some pretty funny moments after the uh, after the game against Romania, Romania, where um, he's joking with his teammates. Yeah, isn't he? Martin Odegaard was being interviewed, and uh, Holland was there as well, and he was sort of butting in, saying, "Well, you know, uh, this guy Odegaard, he's he's got his act together and realised that if you just pass it to me, I'll score, so it's all fine." <laughs> and by the way, he's got his, his yeah, arm it's, around it's, the bloke's it's, neck, it's, as said, he's said it, in so. a very joking manner. <laughs> he's got uh, his arm around his neck. <laughs> Don't know if he's squeezing. He does that, have yeah. a he does Holland does have a flair for saying sort of Zlatan esque things. But but it's an even more obvious sort of winky smiley at the end of it. Like he is he is having a bit of a joke. I think. I'm not even sure. Though he does... The way I read it was that <laughs> hang on, he, he's joking. But, but listen to me, mate. Squeeze you a bit more. Squeeze your neck. Yeah, I'm joking, right? It's a bit more. Well, like we that. did see uh, there was one goal against Romania in particular. Uh, Romania in particular, where we saw the the Martin Odegaard, Aling Holland, you know, connection, which could be very very exciting for Norway going further. He just seems to he just seems to be enjoying himself, which is obviously you would as a twenty year old with the world at your feet, scoring in almost every game. But you know he seems very comfortable with everything. Does he have which the same is, kind of? Sorry, apologies. You no. Can't, does he have the same kind of country versus club dilemma that Griezmann has, for example, that he's been played in, not in his natural position in one of those two? No, not positions. at all, because I think with him it's easy enough. He is an old school number nine, really. You play him up top and you give him as much service as you can and he'll he'll, he'll bosh them in. The only time... The point where you could see him being frustrated was in the Serbia game, which we'll get onto, where Norway were atrocious and created nothing. Uh, he And he when he has no service, it's difficult for him because he can't really 
drop. I mean, there are a lot of strikers, if they're not getting service, they'll drop off and try to get involved in midfield just to get in touch with the ball enough. And he knows he can't do that. He's disciplined enough to know if he starts dropping off and playing as a midfielder, A, he's not going to do a lot of good in that position, and B, he's not going to get the chances when they arrive. But you could see as the game against Serbia was progressing that he was getting really frustrated with just the fact that he wasn't getting anything to work with. and But but he was channeling a lot of that frustration into hassling the Serbian defenders and running around. And what little we, we did create in that game, some of it came from, from Holland winning the ball high up the field on his own, basically. But, but, but I think the frustration for him going forward might come from the fact that he plays day-to-day for Dortmund where you have so many attacking players around him like Gio Reyna and, 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 and Bellingham obviously who's coming through but also guys like Torgan Hazard and Julian Brandt like there's so much attacking talent there's so mm. many guys who can move the ball into the box for him to do something and then there will be times where he goes away to play for Norway and yeah you've got Martin Odegaard there and you've got Alex Solot he has some potential guys to play with but there will be a lot of games where he's not getting the same amount of service and that, that might frustrate him a bit but I, I guess that the question that I would ask, especially off, off the back of that Serbia game, which, you know, so many of us are getting excited about Norway, not just after the emergence of Holland and saw lots improved form over the last year. The fact that Odegaard, for certainly up till the, the, the shutdown, was one of the best players in La Liga last season. I mean, this must have completely changed expectations for, for Norway. And they were, I don't know if they were favourites going into that game, but people expected something from them and you look at the way they played you look at the way they expressed themselves and you think when Lars Lagerbeck came and took charge of Norway I mean that goes back a few years now and Norway were a really low ebb they wanted a results manager just to nail the basics and help them improve in some small way and all of a sudden they've got this talent not exactly out of the blue but it's completely changed the feeling of what Norway are about. So I guess my question to you is, is Lagerbeck still the right coach for this group of players? No, you've you've nailed it on the head in terms of what is the the challenge in Norway right now with the national team. Because uh, when Lagerbeck, I mean, I think the best way to explain Lars Lagerbeck to to a British audience and and people who haven't been you know following his career that closely is that he's kind of a Scandinavian Roy Hodgson, and and there's a link there in the sense obviously. Roy, wow, that sounds weird. Obviously, with Roy, <laughs> Roy having been there, in Sweden. yeah, and and actually Roy's work in Sweden it was very influential in terms of steering uh, Swedish coaching and Swedish football in that direction. Mm. But but the way Lagerbeck sets up his team looks an awful lot like sort of Hodgson era Malmo or something. I mean, it's two banks of four with two strikers up front and it's a huge emphasis on keeping defensive shape without the ball. And, 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 and like, I don't mean to like this Hodgson at all. The job he does with Crystal Palace is really impressive under the circumstances. He's the same with Fulham when he was there. You know, he's really good at what he does, Hodgson. And, and, and Lagerbeck similar when he was at Sweden, he set them up in a very solid way. And, you know, it reminds me Stefan Johansson of Fulham uh, when Lagerbeck took over. He said after the first few international training sessions that it was kind of like brainwashing what was going on because <laughs> they were being told soaked. It was so much focus on like where to stand, what to do. You know, this sort of, it's very, very rigid uh, tactically. And in 2017, when he took over, I think that was exactly what Norway needed because we were just a bit of a rabble. And if you looked at the the names, there were a lot of sort of six out of ten, you know, perfectly decent workman-like players who will do a job for you, but they're not amazing footballers. I think... I mean, our biggest star at the time by a million miles will have been Josh King. And then you had guys like um, like sort of Percy Lanchel by then and, uh, and Stefan Johansson and Alex Tetti. And, I mean, and, and I think Shell Bayed actually quit the national team around then. But the point is, a lot of these sort of 
they're decent, hardworking pros, but not, you know, top international level talent. And we were just not very good. And for Lagerbeck to come in and, you know, maybe we're not good, but Lagerbeck at least will make us harder to beat. And and that seemed fair enough at the time and gave us some structure and, and, and made us competitive. And at that time, that was perfectly fine. I mean, that that was exactly what they needed. But but things are different now if you look at the names. Holland obviously, is the sort of headline-grabbing name in there. But there's also players like Alex Sola, players like Sander Berge, who I think is starting to find his feet really at Sheffield United, a very mm-hmm. talented midfielder. Also someone like Martin Odegaard, who's a number 10, plays uh, for Real Madrid and plays semi-regular now and someone like Moy Elianusi who's doing really well at, at a Celtic and is a very clever sort of wide player likes to work in the spaces between midfield and and attack and there's a lot of guys there who are very promising and who might not you might not get the best out of them in a sort of rigid sort of 4-4-2 you know keep it tight and Looking at the lineup against Serbia, I mean, we played with with Erdogan as uh, on right as right winger in a, in a four four two, which isn't where he's comfortable, and he has license to move around a bit, but it's not, you know, it, 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 the system constrains him in a pretty big way. It, for at, on left flank against uh, Serbia in this crucial playoff, he picked Stefan Johansson of Fulham, who's like a serviceable box to box player. Perfectly decent in the championship, maybe fall through a little bit in the Premier League. But again, he's certainly not an international left-sided midfielder, and and it it it, it just. It was so there was a lack of fluidity there. We were struggling to keep the ball. We were struggling to create anything at all. And I mean, the joke going around on the internet was that maybe maybe Lagerbeck was sort of bullied by a street gang of wingers when he was younger. <laughs> he doesn't seem to play any of them under any circumstance. Uh, but we were so narrow, uh, so predictable, and. Looking at our recent results, okay, bear with me. How we were atrocious against Australia, Australia against Austria, we were atrocious. Then we were quite convincing against a depleted Northern Ireland team. Then we were utterly terrible against Serbia, and then quite convincing against the very poor Romania. And I think what's happening is that we now have individuals in this team who, against weaker opponents, can bully them. You know, against the poor standard of opponents, can have a lot of fun. But the question then becomes, when we meet stronger teams, is the coach setting them off, uh, up as a team in a way that gets the best out of these players? And and after looking at the Austria game and looking at the Serbia game, it's getting very, very hard to make that case uh, for Lars Lagerbeck at the moment. Do you know what you did there? You, first of all, made the comparison between Lagerbeck and Roy Hodgson, which I thought was a great comparison in the way that you described yeah. their influence on the, um, the, the, the local game, etc. But then you decided to tear that apart by saying that Lagerbeck doesn't believing wingers and of course Roy Hodgson depends on wingers but isn't the real comparison between those two managers shouldn't the real comparison be on 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 the national level rather than let's say Roy Hodgson as a club coach either in Sweden or in the UK only because Roy Hodgson had his limitations yep. as an England coach. Mm. Had his limitations. That's why he had to go. I thought he was all right, actually. They didn't give him enough time, but he had his limitations. And he seems to have his limitations at top, top clubs, as we saw with Liverpool, etc. And Lagerbeck seems to have his limitations. I get the fact that he was a stopgap manager, but nevertheless, there's only so much he can achieve with the national team. And then he's got to go, because it, it just yeah. becomes stale. And it also just becomes a case of... I mean, I I really bristle at this sort of idea that coaches are either good or bad coaches. They're not. Coaches are different. They have different abilities and they set up teams in different ways and have different ways of coaching. And I think if you have a 
a team that's frankly not very good, having a slightly sort of reactive manager who who sets the team up very well defensively and structures it very well is completely fine. But if you have better players where you can reasonably expect that they should go out and dominate a match and, and, and control possession and, and, and run the table a little bit more, it, it, it requires a slightly different approach. And, and, and I think... I guess you, you the thing about wingers is a, is a fair point, and I guess the point of the way Norway set up here was that he was hoping the the fullbacks would create width by bombing forward. But then our fullbacks aren't really that good either. And there was, I mentioned these all these big picture problems. Is he the right man? There were also sort of more short term issues about team selection in this game. I mean, Haitam Alasami, who's currently without a club, started at left back, whereas we have Birger Meling, who started really well for Nîmes, playing at left back in Liga this season. Why Alessami was preferred over Mailing, no one could understand at the time. Mailing played against Romania and looked a lot better. So it turned out having a good left back was, was pretty handy. And Marcus Henriksen, who sort of had a dreadful couple of years, started in midfield over Matthias Norman, who's been playing very well recently for the national team. It's been a real discovery, plays for Rostov in the Russian league. So there were sort of team selection issues here as well. And again, picking Stefan Johansson, God bless him. I hate being down on Stefan Johansson because he's someone who clearly cares. And I think when you look at your national team, you want players who work hard and who, who you can sell it matters to them that they're there. And he's definitely one of those. And I think someone, if they put in a lot of work, you shouldn't criticize them too much. But he's probably not someone who should be playing left field, left midfield at international level. And you have Moy Elionusi who gives them so much more verve and, 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 and invention. It seemed like an unnecessarily conservative team selection. And we just it was just dire and it, it was frustrating to watch. It's a doll's house. None of you got that reference. Don't worry about it. That's no, fine. No. That's fine. <laughs> Listen, I knew what you were saying. I knew, I knew you knew. on to the topic that has dominated football right across the world now. It's still this conundrum about can you get fans into stadiums? We know what the result of not having them in stadiums is. We watch it every week and it's not appetising. You know, it's not edifying. <clears throat> but there seems to be differences of opinions as to where you can have fans in and where you can't have them in and how many fans you can have in and how many fans you can't have in. And it's a, it's an issue now as the season progresses because other tournaments are coming into play as well. And the question is, should they be selling tickets for those tournaments, etc.? What are the restrictions currently, Andy, in, in Europe? Well, what are the... Because they differ from country to country. Yeah, they do. And they differ within countries as well. So Do they differ within FIFA? Um, well, yeah, because it's just down to the individual countries. And UEFA? Uh, uh, well, with, with UEFA, they've, um, for the Champions League, and we'll get onto the Champions League in a minute, um, for the start of that, they've said um, you can have 20% capacity maximum, but it obviously depends on the, the rules of the local authorities and the local health authorities. Um, so, I mean, on, on one hand, we could look at you know the, the way it's come down for example, in, in France, they started in um, July with maximum of 5,000. That's since come down to 1,000 in a couple of big, um, one one or two big metropolises. It's, it's been 
a thousand maximum um, for the last little while. And we've even had teams playing behind closed doors in Marseille, for example. Um, in Germany, it's, it's even more nuanced. It's, it's about it's a thousand in Italy maximum. But in, in Germany, because everything's done um, by federal states rather than nat nationally, it's, it's even, even more different. I mean, we've seen uh, the German national team play behind closed doors twice in the last week. It looked as if for the Switzerland game, the three-all draw, the other had two three-all draws in Cologne in the last week. It's extraordinary. And no one's been there to, to see those, those, those 12 goals. Um, but it was initially thought that they might have uh, 300 turn up for the game in Cologne, but it's considered the the infection rate's too high, so they just um, played it behind closed doors in the end. Now, of course, just down the road from Cologne, their their biggest rivals are Borussia Mönchengladbach. Uh, Gladbach have had crowds of up to ten thousand in. They have also um, put tickets on sale for their game against Real Madrid in the Champions League, which will be twenty percent of capacity, which will be about eleven thousand. So you've got that coming as as well. Obviously, things could change between now and then. So it's a, it's a very, very fluid situation. What we do know, though, and because we've seen these differences in the same competition, and of course that's going to be the case when, especially when there are international competitions, that you've got those incredible games in Germany, those really wild games in Germany behind closed doors. And then you had the nil-nil draw it's quite a flat game on Sunday night in Warsaw between Poland and Italy. Over 10,000 were there. And Roberto Mancini spoke about it afterwards and said, it was amazing. We just, I felt alive. The players felt alive. And I do wonder, Lars, going into this first round of Champions League games, it's always exciting to have the Champions League back. But even if this is only short term, and we've said about how the situation can change, could this be a really incredible round of fixtures because we'll have the feeling of fans there for some of them? Yeah, maybe. I feel, I feel slightly icky discussing this, to be honest. I don't want to like. Yeah, uh, I think that's fair. I don't want to sort of uh, upend the entire section, <laughs> but you know, I just we're not epidemiologists, any of us, and I think football has this ability that when we're talking about football, very often we end up talking about other things than football, and it sometimes leads us astray in terms of you're asking sort of football journalists to talk about things we don't know. Yeah. I, I can't say anything about how safe it is to have that many people in the stand. I honestly don't know. Uh, I, obviously, I, it'll be great uh, having the, the authentic sound of a crowd in there, and I'm sure it will give the players a lift, but I feel uneasy moving in that direction when we have cases on the rise the way we do but then again maybe it's safe i don't i i, I can't i can't rightly say but i can i can I, I can definitely say it'll make a big difference what i wanted to mention is that the odd thing about having fans in the stands i mean in, in norway we've had we've had some fans in the stands for quite a, quite a while after the games started uh, pretty early on they decided they could let uh, a small number in and people could just stay away from each other uh, but but the number was really small. I mean, they allowed two hundred people to come in. <laughs> uh, but but actually, just having two hundred people in, you got a surprising amount of noise out of those two hundred because Eurosport, uh, God bless them, showed some of these games 
in this country because the Norwegian league started up before anything else did. So there was a period where you, I, I could sort of turn on Eurosport on my the telly in a front room and there was, you know, gorgeous uh, Norwegian football on there. It was fantastic. <laughs> but I was really taken aback by how, comparatively in certain, certain stadiums, how much noise you could actually get out of 200 people. And it, it does make you realise how much we've missed in this period. Uh, you can put on the fake sound, and, and I have to confess I do sometimes, but when, when you... When you get actual crowds in, it's, it it adds so much more. Now, interestingly, in Denmark, they allowed uh, f- they they initially, of course, it was locked down, but then they started opening up, and they've had a few games in the Danish league over the summer with with several thousand people in, just with good spacing between them in the stand. Now they've gone away from that again and and gone back to just letting I think it is five hundred people in. That's the thing; it is all quite transient, but, is, isn't and, it? And that is something. Yeah. I, I just want to say that's that's something that I believe this, uh, the the Danish clubs are quite frustrated with because in this period when they had a few thousand people in the stadiums, as I understand it, there were no sort of recorded cases of COVID being spread that was traced back to the stadiums in question. Mm. So it did seem like it went quite well, but. All the same, they've decided to go back to having uh, just, I believe, the number is 500 in the stadiums. Uh, so they've kind of, you know, gone in the other direction a little bit there. But when you go to these mini, mini, mini crowds, as we were talking about, Don, when we go sub 1,000, you have some interesting knock-on effects. I mean, we talked before about the rivalry between Köln and Borussia. You mentioned Gladbach. We had the derby there just before the international break in front of 300 people at, at Köln. Now, Gladbach were brilliant. They wiped the floor with them. Köln are in a bit of a hole at the moment. But Marcus Turam, of course, son of Lillian, he had a really great game that day, as he often does. Such a good player for Borussia Mönchengladbach. And he always does a thing now to celebrate a win. He takes the shirt of one of his teammates, he pops it on the corner flag, and then he waves it in the air <laughs> in a massive flag. So he he picked the shirt of... And uh, does his teammate get the yellow card for that? Uh, well, th- this is after the game's done. <laughs> oh, okay. This is after the game's Just done. Checking. So um, and, and he waves it in front of the fans. And so uh, at the end of the game, he took the um, shirt of uh, Stefan Lanner, the defender who scored his first goal in that year and a half and um, had an important game there as well. And so Turam, looking as jolly as he always does, Sticks the flag on and it's been absolutely pouring down. So it's it's hard sell anyway because the shirt's really heavy. Mm. It's kind of slipping down the flagpole. <laughs> so he has to really fix it on. Yes. He eventually gets it in the air and starts waving it in front of the empty away end where the, the Gladbach fans would have been. Oh, and uh, as that's well as, as as well as well as <laughs> as well as hearing that like the um that obviously his, his his teammates join joining in and all the rest of it. And it's a nice thing to do to try and reach out to the Gladback fans who couldn't be there. Oh, you could just you could just hear <laughs> the, the, these these three hundred Cologne fans who are sort of filing out the ground. Obviously, some of them haven't gone home yet. They're, they're, they're sort of you could just hear these individual voices going, "Fuck off! Oi, do do oi, it in your own stadium." You translating it literally from the German? Yes. And do they have that word in Germany? Because the Scandinavians don't have anything as volatile as "f off." Well, I, I, I suppose it's... it's oh, you, could, you could say, da to hell with or something. Yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> Fantastic. Go to hell. Satan. Let the devil but, take but you. But that's, that's different. Isn't, isn't that it's us? To hell with the Andy Brussels. Yeah, that's nothing. How that's dare you? <laughs> I don't know that's, what that means. It basically <laughs> means, let, let's have a hug. I'm not, I'm not too much against you. Go to hell. But the thing is, it's not the literal translation of the word, words, is it? It's always the sentiment. I don't know. Take the the only three words that David Beckham ever got out there in Spanish. 
hijo de puta to the linesman. What's that mean? Son of a bitch. Well, he actually said that. He said that to the linesman. And then he obviously claimed he didn't know what it meant after he got the red card. <laughs> yeah, I used to but, try that one. But the thing is, I, I always think of that as a phrase, as something that Clint Eastwood used as Westerns. But in a traditionally Catholic country, mm. obviously, to call someone's mother a whore is, is like really, really offensive. So, you know, it's, it's not just the words, it's sentiment, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, 100%. But where are we now? Because it seems to me like... Not, not watching, swearing at people. Well, that that's, well. that's where we are. <laughs> that as well. But it seems to me like football without the fans is, is like top of the pops without the crowd, you know, the audience. Mm. Imagine what that would be like. And for you younger listeners, yeah, top of the pops, old school thing. Um, ask your granddad about the 6-5 special, Ready, Steady, Go, and that kind of thing. It's all part of the same thing. But you can't do it without the audience in there you can't do it without the audience okay you can play football but you can't actually get football without the fans you know the football no. is not just about what's going on on the pitch and, and it's we, about the drama and the emotion going on all around the stadium at the, at the time yeah and we can talk don about how it's a televisual spectacle yeah. now, nowadays but the fact is it does have and we've seen it through the statistics ever since the bundesliga restarted and we saw you know more ball in play um less diving less complaining at the referee, all those sort of things. The crowd does really affect how the game is actually played. Mm. And, and that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, it really does. Um, I was just going on the subject of, of bad words in foreign languages. I wanted to bring you back to the last time I was on here. I spoke about Jens Petelhauge from uh, Bulldog Dem 2, who got his, after, after getting the OTC seal of approval, got his big move to Milan, of course. And now, most people in Norway... He does owe you a commission. Yeah, does, I think he, he does. does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, well, last, last, the year before, last year was Holland, now it was Hauge, you know. It's, he, owes, he owes you a signed yeah, shirt at the very least. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> no, so, so most people were very happy for him moving to moving to Milan and because Bodo Glimt are so far ahead, there's no sense that him leaving will derail their title challenge at all. Uh, but not everyone wished him well. There was one man in the sort of, under the comments under the article, there's always someone. And I wanted to bring this up because this became a bit of a thing in Norway People thought it was quite delightful. So there was a, someone went on a rant about how egocentric he was for leaving his hometown club and this sort of thing. You know, you'll get some wow. of these guys. But he wrote, uh, you're a clown, you're a shit man, and a fish hippie. <laughs> fish hippie. <laughs> a fish hippie, which I have to say is not a commonly used Norwegian insult. And everyone sort of agreed this is the sentiment is all wrong, but fish hippie is tremendous. <laughs> in fiske hippie. Which, <laughs> and also, P.S., mean... I, I hope Ibra gives you COVID. Which I thought was, wow. Was a dig. In fiske hippie. Uh, I'm sure that fiske hippie should have been fiske fru. That's how we do it over here, you <laughs> yeah. know. Like a fish, fishwife, you know, that's what we would say over here. Right. So it's equivalent to that. I want to bring oh, this to the world, Fisker Hippie. And as we wrap up this segment of the program, I just need to ask very quickly, Lash, will we get our Christmas tree this year? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, surely there's there's got to be a way. Right. Yeah, because you, you know the Norwegians give us a Christmas tree every year. Oh, I, year I, have, I have one yeah. every year. Was yeah. it last year? There was, year? there was one year where people thought the tree was a bit bad. And uh, there was about the, the tree at Trafalgar Square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah not the one that you got. Thought, in your someone gaff. thought we sent you a bad tree, and yeah, they were quite well. ungrateful about it. But you know, we'll pick you, a better one. You time. lot send us in Nigeria the bad cod, and we're going to have That's... a bone to pick with you. You see, <laughs> no such thing as bad cod. <laughs> my there friend. is, there is, there is. They, they select the bad cod Fisky because hippie. they know that all we're exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Very good. But we'll pick up on that another time. They know that all we do with the cod is dry it, you know, so they send us the stuff that's not so fresh. That's another story. It's fun time now because you're going to all both uh, give us a tip for a game of the week. Um, who wants to go first? It's a super Saturday, isn't it, isn't it, Lance? I think we've bo- we've both gone for Saturday, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, it's a fun one in Serie A because you do have uh, you do have Napoli Atalanta uh, early on Saturday, which should be good. Uh, but but later on, it's um, it, it's Inter versus Milan, which I think is going to be a tremendous game. Milan really are in. in it's been a while since we could say this. Milan are really exciting right now, I think. They yeah, have a lot, lot of young players. They seem to be getting it together. I mean, all the all the focus will be on Ibra, of course, but if you look away from that, there's a quite a sort of young, vibrant squad they've put together there. And uh, after the sort of the, the Lee Young-Hung debacle and all of that, I mean, the club seems to have a sense of direction now. And, and really, their results in, in 2020 have been very, very good. And I, I know they're still sort of rank outsiders here, but the way it's started, I mean, would you bet against Milan having some kind of like a, a cheeky little title tilt you know Juventus look like they could be vulnerable with Ooh, a yeah. with, Juventus look like they could be vulnerable with a rookie with a rookie head coach you know Conte's Inter you don't probably the most likely if not Juventus but you don't fully trust them so it's a really exciting time at Milan obviously they've signed uh, the fish hippie and Spetta Hugo of course which <laughs> <Yes>. helps uh, <laughs> but but no they face Inter here and um, just with Inter we were talking earlier about a short-termism in football. I mean, they've signed a ton of old guys there, so so and, and on some on some pretty big wages. So surely, with Juventus looking a little bit more get you know catchable, if that's a phrase than usual, yeah. surely this has to be the year for content Inter. I mean, they've not built a team for five years from now. They've not even built a team for next season. They've built a team for this season, and and it has to be the thing. So this sort of sort of young, up-and-coming, vibrant uh, Milan team plus Ibra facing the, the sort of slightly older guard of, of Inter. It's a really exciting derby. You know what? I'm going to allow you to convince us that Milan are a genuine title challenger. Yeah. I want I want to believe. I'm not going to go that far, but like, I was just because Inter, because Milan, You've sorry. You've already convinced me now. It's too late. Milan for so long has been a frustrating and depressing outfit. They are now at least, there's a sense they're moving in the right direction. Mm. And uh, yeah, how exciting would so that be? So what was the game again? <laughs> it's, it's Inter <laughs> versus Milan on, on Saturday at uh, 5, I think, UK time. Yeah, yeah 5, 5 p.m. So what I'm going to do is allow you to have some time to enjoy the Milan derby then maybe fry yourself a bit of fish then come back to your screens for 8 30 and yeah it's on free sports and it's on the live score app etc et so surprised to hear you I pick know, a game from uh, such a shock on but brand look, Andy <laughs> bottom line it's a classical it's is sporting versus Porto it'd be really interesting to see because um sporting I think have got a really terrific coach now in uh Ruben Amorim who's fully uh, recovered from his spell with coronavirus. They've got some really interesting young players uh, led by Nuno Mendes at left back and Eduardo Quaresma as well. So, and you look at Porto and they've had a very, very busy transfer period. Of course, they lost Alex Telles, who's going to be a huge miss for them. But as well as getting some interesting ones, they've got Felipe Anderson, of course, from from West Ham, Mm. who I think the idea is West Ham, send him out there, put him in the shop window and find a way to sell him and recoup their money later in the year, which is something we discussed on the, on the, on the ramble earlier this week. I also think it's a fallacy that, to think that he'll walk straight into the team because Porto do have some very interesting attacking players and some other ones who they thought they might lose 
um, this summer, including uh, Jesus Corona, the yeah. Mexican. Jesus Corona, a good name for our times. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. <laughs> uh, and Otavio as well. You know, they a lot of people thought they would go. They're still there. So um, they're always competitive under Sergio Conceição. But there's so much football on on Saturday. Of course, you, you'll know that there's Everton versus Liverpool on at lunchtime. Um, Celtic Rangers, Napoli, Atalanta, as you mentioned. Two Bundesliga games is a 5.31 and, and a 7.31. Look, all I'm saying, you need your telly, laptop, phone, iPad. You need the lot on Saturday. Jesus, is that the time? <laughs> this was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.